Good morning. I greet you all in Jesus' name. It's good to be here with you this morning. I recognize some of you, but many of you I do not. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's good. I haven't visited you here yet. I've been at Harmony before, but uh, since then some changes have, been, have, have taken place here on your end, and, and uh, which we rejoice in. Praise God. Um, I think before I'll go further, if you would all want to stand with me for a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the message. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning that we can be here together in your name. And so we are looking to you, Father, that you would speak to our hearts again. We are grateful, Father, for your word. We are grateful for what we have heard already, Lord, and how when Christ comes into our hearts, our attitudes are renewed and changed, and yet, Lord, we need to be reminded of that again and again. So we are grateful for that. Father, I pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word, speak to me and and, uh, through me, Lord. Give me the right words to say and help me, Lord, to share your will and your, your word for this congregation here this morning. We are thankful, we are grateful, and commit this time into your hand, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you. You may be seated. If, uh, I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 7 for an opening to introduce our subject here this morning. Judges chapter 7, or actually in already in chapter 6, we meet a man, a, uh, I think a very well-known Bible character here, and uh, a very yeah, blessed by his testimony each time I read this account. And yet we see that he seems to be a nervous man. He isn't a very self-confident man. Uh, and yet, God uses him mightily. We see here in in the beginning of Judges, or I should say in the whole book of Judges, we see an up and down with the children of Israel, where for a period of time they're faithful to God, and then they fall away. And then a, a judge stands up and, and turns uh, the people's hearts, or, or the their attitude changes, or... They recognize their need and then they turn to God and then uh, by a faithful judge, they're delivered from their enemies. And here we have exactly such a judge as this name's, or this judge's name is Gideon. And as I already said, this uh, man, Gideon, is, is not a very self-confident man. He seems to be somewhat insecure. And yet, even in his insecurity, we see God using him mightily. We see here at the beginning of, of uh, Judges chapter 7, we see that the Midianites are oppressing Israel. They have been for some time, and God raises up this man, Gideon, to be their deliverer. We also see here that... Uh, the natural thing in our human thinking is that we try to get a large army together, as many people as possible, so that we can defeat the enemy. And that's what happens. Gideon sends out the call 
to invite many men to come and join this worthy cause of defeating the Midianites and protecting them. Um, when, what is it, 20-some thousand or 30,000 people get together and, and join this noble cause, uh, God gives some strange direction. And that's sometimes what happens to us too, isn't it? We get some some direction that doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's what happens to Gideon. He, he gets told to reduce your army by, I didn't do the percentage, but I mean, it's probably 90, 95%. I mean, from 32,000 down to 300. I mean, all of a sudden, your entire army, um, I mean, it isn't entirely, but Almost your entirely arm, your entire army gets sent home. And um, yet, in verse seven here, we see that God promises to Gideon that by these three hundred men, by those three hundred men that lapped, will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go, every man to his own place. Gideon. Bless him. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed. Even in his insecurity and uncertainty at times, he takes God at his word. He sends the 32,000 home and says, well, this is what God has said, and so it must be the case. Now, even though that was the case, he is afraid. He's terribly afraid. And I mean, who wouldn't be in his in his shoes? I mean, you're... Uh, the Midianites were a huge host, and here it's a small amount of men that God says he will deliver them. Now, how is God going to do that? But God recognizes uh, his insecurities. He recognizes his uncertainty. And then he tells Gideon that if you're unsure... If you're unsure, I want you to go down and listen to what the, the Midianites are saying. And now, if you're scared to go, if you're scared to go, I even take one of your fellow men with you. Take one man with you. Go down and listen to what is what they are saying down in the camp. He goes down <clears throat> and with his friend, which tells us he was scared. Um, so he goes down very carefully, I'm sure, so that he's not detected or, or found out. And he goes down and then he listens, uh, overhears a couple of men talking. And the one man says to the other man that he had a dream. And in this dream, he dreamed of a, a cake of barley. This is verse 13 there. A cake of barley that tumbled into the host of Midian. And came unto the tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it and the tent lay, uh, or how does it say it? Lay along. So it just, uh, this, this, um, I picture this, this muffin or this loaf of bread or something like that just tumbled into the camp, knocked a tent down and it all uh, fell down flat. Now the interesting thing is the, the man that he tells this dream to is a, uh, he, he's very, pers- perceptive he perceives that uh, what this the what the meaning is of this and in verse 14 he tells us here he says this is nothing else save the sword of Gideon the son of Joash the man of Israel for into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host 
And now, can you just imagine Gideon is, is with his, his fellow armor bearer, his fellow soldier there. They're hiding in the bushes. They're in the sidelines. They're, they're not being detected and they're overhearing this. And they hear this dream and they hear this taking place. And then they hear the interpretation of that dream. And Gideon, I can't help but picture Gideon being there, hunched in the bushes, and all of a sudden an awe just overtakes him. Now, if you go to the next verse, and this is really the verse I wanted, but it takes you have to build yourself up to this to understand what this story is about. And it says here, and it was so when Gideon heard, heard what these men were talking about, the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof, that he worshipped. That he worshipped. And then it says he returned to the host, and I'm sure, I mean, he was encouraged, he was ready to go, but I can't help but think there, there was a moment there, and how long that moment was, I'm not sure, uh, but I, I can't help but think it was, it was, it was a moment, it was several moments, maybe a whole minute, that both of them just paused and and turned their hearts, maybe their eyes, maybe their maybe they closed their eyes. I'm not sure, but they just stood there for that moment and they just worshipped God for what He was about to do. Now, notice He hadn't given the victory yet; that hadn't taken place, but He had given them the assurance that it would take place. And Gideon's response is one of worship, one of praise. One of adoration, one of just, yeah, praising God. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he was, he was very quiet here. He didn't burst out in a song. He didn't burst out in a hallelujah. It was a silent worship of God. And my thoughts today, thinking of what to share with you here, uh, that is where I would like to turn our thoughts and attention to today uh, in the few minutes that we have here together. The idea of giving God praise and honor and worship which He deserves. <clears throat> so we'll consider a few of these. We'll look at uh, a psalm. We'll consider some different things about God and His His. The, the praise and the worship that he rightfully deserves. We have, I believe, many accounts of this, and we were, we're not going to uh, go through all of them even that I have written down here. The next one I'd like to look at is a New Testament account, and that's in the book of Acts. If we turn with me to, to Acts chapter 11, we have a, I want to say a similar account, and yet it's completely different. But the results are the same. We see here in Acts chapter 11, actually Acts chapter 10, we have to take the context here. Uh, at the beginning of Acts chapter 10, we have Peter. Uh, he's in a, in a village or is the city of Joppa there. Joppa, I think it is. And he's uh, by the seaside and he's hungry. And God uh, gives him a vision. He gives him a vision there. And as he's... Um, Seeing this vision, it's something that is detestable to him. It's the sheet comes down and, and this voice tells him to eat 
of all these unclean animals that are there. And Peter, um, well, he's he's good Jew. Um, he wants to stay. He wants to keep himself pure. And so he he responds the way that and that uh, any good Jew would. He says, "No, I've never eaten anything unclean, and I'm not going to either." And then that happens three times, and the sheet is taken up, and I'm, I'm sure we're familiar with that. And then at the end of that, we have the Spirit of God saying to him, there's, there's, uh, I think it's three men are seeking for you, and follow them, doubting nothing. Go with them. Don't doubt anything. We see that Peter does exactly that, and then he goes to Cornelius' house, and, and Peter is surprised. He, uh, he, in his message, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, Always amazed the message that he preaches there in, in, in Acts chapter 10. It seems he kind of stumbles over, over his words, but he gets his point across. And yet God comes down mightily and uh, saves Cornelius, his house, and everyone else that is there. And, and Peter, I mean, he, he responds, I think, uh, very, very wisely. He baptizes them, recognizing that this is a work of God. And now... I think God, uh, Peter responded in worship here. It doesn't specify it quite as much here as, as we're going to see later on. But then, after this account, Peter goes home and has to give an account, which I think is only right when, when uh, something so, shall I say, different takes place. See, this, this, isn't, this isn't so different for us because... We recognize God's heart for the Gentiles. We recognize God's heart for people of a different background than what we are. So this isn't as strange for us, but for Peter and for the early church, the Jewish Christians there, this was totally new. I mean, there was, the salvation was for the Jews. And now all of a sudden here, uh, the, these Gentiles are getting saved. I mean, that is totally new to them. And uh, yet, I mean... Uh, God was trying to prepare them for that. Then, uh, as I said, in Acts chapter 11, Peter rehearses exactly what happens to, he gives an account to his fellow, uh, the fellow apostles, to other fellow believers, and he shares what happens. And he gives, uh, he basically says, who was I to resist the Spirit of God? And then we see, after Peter says this in verse 18, in verse 18 of chapter 11, he says, When they heard these things, they held their peace, and they here is the people that the, the Peter's fellow believers that he's giving the account to. So I think it would include other, the other apostles, it would include other men of God, it would include the deacons. I mean, I'm not sure who all this group was. But it was men, um, godly men there. And when they heard that, they held their peace and glorified God. You notice that. I can't help but think there the same thing took place as what happened with Gideon. There was a pause. There was a silence. There was an awe that filled their heart, their mind. And then uh, here, I mean, it would have been appropriate and it doesn't say, but... Very possibly a, a hallelujah came out or somebody burst out in a song or something like that. But then their response, after they're glorifying God in their heart, they say, uh, Then hath God also 
to the Gentiles granted a repentance unto life. And it seemed like that dawned on them and just an awe came over them of glory and honor and praise to their heavenly Father and to what, to what Jesus had done, not only for them, but for the entire world. And I wonder if at that point, the Scripture, the Old Testament, the Scripture of, of salvation to the Gentiles and the light of the, to the Gentiles and all those types of things just kind of took on a new meaning to them that they had never seen before. And we see here, they glorified God. They glorified God. <clears throat> now, what about us? Turn, turn with me to First John. First John chapter three. What about us? I guess does this kind of attitude, or has it ever? Uh, have you ever experienced it? Has this ever? been something that has come that you have I guess recognized the the goodness of God the glory of God and it just caused you to pause and to worship the way that Gideon did the way that the men there in Acts chapter 11 did and just worship God for his marvelous marvelous goodness now if we look here in 1 John chapter 3, we read uh, some awesome words. And I, and I think I use the, that word properly. I know it's misused a lot today. Awesome. Many awesome things that, that aren't awesome at all. But here we see the word, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. And just, just lifting that up, that part there, where it talks about, you know, do we, do we, does that cause awe to rise up and swell up within our hearts to recognize that we are called the children of God? Behold, we are called the sons of God. We are called the daughters of God. I know it's using the word sons here, but it refers to men and women, sons and daughters. It refers to the children of God. And does that, when, when, when uh, we pause and think about that, is there a swelling up of praise that comes out of our hearts and out of our minds for, uh, towards God for being, being called the sons of God, that we have the privilege to be called the sons of God, that God has come down, uh, given His Son, given His life, given, I mean, everything, so that we can now have fellowship with Him. Uh, may that cause within us to rise, uh, may within us rise up a praise and an honor and a glorification of God for what He has done. Let us worship Him. We find in Scripture, probably switch gears here a little bit, we find in Scripture that God deserves praise. 
God deserves glory. God deserves honor. And this is what he is longing for from you and I. He is longing for us to worship him. He is longing for us to give our life to him. He is longing to, uh, for us to recognize the provisions that he has made for us. He is longing for us to, to simply thank him, to honor him, to praise him, to bring glory and honor to him. Are we doing that in, through our lives? Are we doing that through our speech? Are we doing that through who we are, through our attitude, as the brother shared this morning? Um, this is something that God is longing for. And what, uh, if, if, um, what we'll do now is we'll go to Psalm 107 and we'll consider this psalm. I, I don't think we'll read necessarily the whole psalm, but we, we want to consider it a little bit. This psalm stood out to me, um, I don't know, several years ago, and it just kind of, uh, yeah, jumped out uh, one time when I was reading through the psalms, and it, it's a real, it's a real blessing. It's a bit of a long psalm, but it uh, it's it's kind of separated into different sections, and this is the cry of this psalm that men and women would praise God. We see, um, we see here in the first two verses, it says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And then from here, from here it breaks into I don't know, four or five different times where it almost like it gives it a, a, a brief story and then there's a verse that, that kind of, uh, that brings a proclamation and then it tells another brief story and then it gives a, another proclamation, the same verse again and we'll, we'll uh, see that as we go through this. But the first section here is a brief history of Israel and their wanderings in the wilderness and how they find themselves in very desperate circumstances at times. They find themselves without water. They find themselves uh, with enemies pursuing them. They find themselves with serpents biting them, these different things. And in some of those cases, the reason is because they turned away from God. But then it says there that when they turned their hearts back to God, when they cried out to God, then... God sent deliverance. God sent them salvation. God sent them a a help. And then you see in verse 8 here what the cry is after that. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. See see the, 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 um, the heart cry there? Oh, that men would cry, would praise the Lord. Oh, that men would praise the Lord. Then we see in verses uh, 9 to 15 about, we see that they rebel. They turn away from God. uh, And uh, affliction comes and difficulties come and trouble comes. And then again, they cry out, verse 13, Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them. From their, of their distresses. 
He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and break their bands in sunder. And then we have that cry again. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. That's the cry. God, God helps them. They turn away from God. God punishes them. Then they cry out to God. God helps them. And then he's longing for a praise in response, a thanksgiving, a, a worshipful attitude, as we saw with Gideon, as we saw with the, the men there in Acts chapter 11, an, an attitude of praise and adoration towards God. We continue on here in verse uh, 16. We have it, we have it again. For he hath broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are affl- afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and, and they draw near unto the, gra- of the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saveth them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them out of their dis- destructions. And then we have that cry again. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Then the next account, verses 23, uh, I think it's through 31, we have an account of a sailor going out into a into the sea and in as he's traveling you know a storm comes and the and the ship is tossed and the waves come and beat the ship and there's a terrible storm and everyone um uh, is is terribly terribly afraid i mean i've never been on a on a big ocean liner uh but i have read accounts where men who have been and and they say it's a terribly frightening experience to rise uh, with the whole ship rises up three stories high and then plummets down just as quickly. Where in your beds, one moment you're standing on your head and the next moment you're standing upright. And meanwhile, you should be laying down flat. It's a terrible, terribly scary experience. And these men, as it describes them here, they're, they reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. They have no idea anymore what is going on and what's going to happen. And yet, they respond with, verse 28, they they cry unto the Lord in their trouble. And what does he do? He bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then verse 31, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. See, that's what God is longing for, the response of men. God wants to help us. God wants to help mankind. He, he uh, If he didn't, I mean, he could forsake, but he, he's there, he's, he's interceding, he's working, he's, he's trying to show himself strong to those who will trust Him. Show Himself strong to those who will believe in Him. Show Himself strong to those who will cry out to Him. And then He, re- resp- he longs for a response from us. 
one of praise and thanksgiving and honor, one of, as Gideon did, worship. Worship. See, our life can have storms as well. The storms of life around me beating. I think there's a song that goes something like that. And it, we can be there too. They're, they're beating. They're, they're attacking us from all angles at times. And we don't know at times where to go. And yet, when we cry out to God, God is, is there to help us. He wants to help us. But then He also longs for us to respond in praise, in thanksgiving, in adoration. And I believe, and I believe not when it's done. Before and during the midst of this trial or, or storm that we find ourselves in. Um, I found in my life that when uh, uh, a difficulty comes to have an attitude of surrender, an attitude of I will praise you whether it goes the way that I hope it will or not. I will uh, serve you whether it goes my way or the way that I think it should or I would prefer it to or not. Either way. And so that's a surrender on my part, which then if God chooses to do it that way or not, um, it's up to him. But either way, my commitment is firm. I want to serve him and honor him and praise him for what he is going to do. And I think that attitude of, of thanking God before, when, when we have a, a request and a petition, a petition for him, Lord, um, whatever it is, then we thank him. Lord, thank you. We praise you for how you will answer already. Before the answer comes. And that, uh, I think God is, is delighted in that. And then from there we watch him, uh, uh, we watch him miraculously, or sometimes it seems not so miraculously, work out the circumstances in a way that amazes us and hopefully causes us to praise and bring glory and honor to him. For which he's longing for. He's longing for that from us. <clears throat> we have the psalm going on here where he talks about turning the wilderness into uh, a dry ground. Or sorry, the wilderness would be uh, often in, in the Old Testament, wilderness is desert. And so the, the desert there is turned into a water springs uh, or or. A, Sorry, verse 33 says the rivers into a wilderness and the water springs into dry grounds. So that way. And then verse 34, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. So God extends punishment or he causes uh, situations to come to cause people to, to or to jolt them to their attention and to help them to recognize that they are uh, turning away from God. But then, we see in verse 35, he turns it around. He turneth the wilderness into a standing water and a, and a dry ground into water springs. And there he maketh the hungry to dwell, and that they may prepare a city for habitation. And sow the fields and plant vineyards, which may yield fruits of increase. He blesses them also so that they are multiplied greatly and suffereth not their cattle to decrease. 
Again, they are minished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. He poureth contempt upon the princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet setteth he the poor on high from affliction and maketh him families like a flock. The righteous shall see it and rejoice and all iniquity shall stop her mouth. So they won't be able to answer, uh, give an answer or a comeback to God at all. They will stop their mouth. But the righteous will rejoice. And then verse 43 it says, Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. And that, that, uh, the conclusion there of this psalm is the fact that as we observe our life and as we observe when we turn our hearts in praise and adoration towards God, often that's when God starts to work. And so Psalm 43 says, or sorry, Psalm 107 verse 43 here says, if we observe these things, then we will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. And that, that's pretty exciting to me. Being able to observe God's goodness to us. <clears throat> and he takes care of us in our circumstances. So, my question now is, do we see, do we see the hand of God in our lives? Do we see him drawing us to him? where he longs to worship us? Do we see that as, as he directs our lives in different things? Sometimes, I think we, we consider uh, things that happen to us, kind of, we, we consider them almost, uh, we don't want to say it this way, because, well, we're Christians and we believe God, but we almost sometimes consider things as happening by chance. And I'd like to say that I think... Um, we need to change those thoughts. I think we can, we can take, God is in control. And things don't happen to us just by chance. Um, sometimes it appears that way. I believe sometimes God does miracles in a way that is very, almost explainable by man. They can just explain it away. And yet if we observe, if we consider it carefully enough, we can see the hand of God working in this or that situation. And um, sometimes he works different than we hope, but if we maintain an attitude of surrender, an attitude of praise, and an attitude of thanksgiving, then God will receive glory and honor from us and through us and through that circumstance. Now, there's another verse that stood out to me one time as I was reading uh, in First Kings. And... Um, this might seem a little bit strange where I'm going with this, but bear with me. I think I'll be able to uh, take you along, pull it together here. But in 1 Kings chapter 22, we have uh, the account of Ahab. Actually, the last several chapters of 1 Kings are, are about Ahab. And we see that God wants Ahab dead. He is a wicked man. Um, God has said that he will punish him. God has said that, that uh, his, uh, the dogs will lick the blood of Ahab. And we see that Ahab humbled himself, um, which is 
which we rejoice over and his pride and all the wicked things he did. I mean, the Bible talks about none being before him, none being as wicked as he was. And so we see that Ahab, uh, God, or it was time for him, for his life to come to an end. I mean, he'd, he'd been king long enough. He'd done enough wicked things and God wanted to uh, bring him, bring his life or, uh, yeah, bring his life to an end. We see here at the beginning of chapter 22 that, that there's a prophecy, uh, that Ahab will, will die. And then these, um, the interesting thing here is, uh, in, in some cases, sad also, Jehoshaphat joins Ahab and the two of them go into battle together. Now, Jehoshaphat was a godly man. Ahab was a, a very wicked man. And yet they made an allegiance towards each other, which is a very bad thing to do and on Jehoshaphat's part. But uh, he did it nonetheless. And then they go into battle. Jehoshaphat dressed as, as the king. Uh, Ahab, uh, being wise, he disguises himself. And the king of Syria, I think that's who, the, who they're battling here, Syria told his men, he told them, he said, don't worry about anybody else. The only person I want you to get is Ahab. Get him and kill him. That's the only one that I'm concerned about. Don't worry about the soldiers. Don't worry about the captains. I mean, I mean, sure, they'll have to fight them, but, but just be, I'm concerned about Ahab. I want him dead. That's what uh, the king of Syria said. And they go into battle with that mentality and they recognize the king. They say, there's the king. They go after him and it turns out to be Jehoshaphat. He, he in turn cries out to God and God delivers him. And Ahab seems to have escaped. Um, he just escapes the situation. Nobody recognizes uh, that Ahab uh, dressed as uh, a regular plain soldier. Nobody recognizes that that's the king. Uh, and so nobody can get at him, if I can say it that way. But then you have an interesting verse in verse 34. It says that a certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness, wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thine hand and carry me out of, out of the host, for I am wounded." And then if you read on further there, we see that, that, uh, he dies and later on actually they wash out his chariot and the blood washes out and the dogs lick up his blood exactly the way that the prophet had said. But here, notice this verse. A certain man drew a bow at a venture. So a man, I mean, I'm assuming that was a Syrian, he just takes out an arrow, puts it in his bow, and just at random, that's what that means, adventure, just kind of at random, shoots an arrow. And isn't it amazing? That arrow is the very one that struck Ahab. Everyone else has been trying to get at him and, and doesn't know who he is, and, and he's been able to avoid uh, getting caught, getting killed. And yet that arrow that was just shot at random is the one that strikes him. And what struck me, and what I just want us to consider here, that when something happens at a venture in our life, kind of at random, where it doesn't seem like this has any point, or where did this come from, or it just, uh, it just kind of happened at random, that could it be that, 
God's hand is in that very thing directing um, that arrow to us. And I mean, hopefully not to kill us, but uh, however, however God then sees it. But from the, from the, um, from the human perspective, it would look like something random. Something, uh, that, you know, it's just something random. Adventure. And yet God's hand was in that very thing, directing it and causing it to accomplish exactly what He wanted it to do. And that can be, that can cause us, I believe again, to just surrender, to yield, to uh, lift up our eyes in awe and worship, that even those things that seem to have little significance, that seem random, God's hand is in there, directing it, guiding it, and, and uh, uh, causing it to work out His will according to His uh, desire and plan. So then, when the world shoots an arrow at us, how do we respond? Are we uh, an arrow? Okay, like what? Well, things like uh, things go wrong at work. You know, uh, maybe a bad business deal. Uh, maybe we made some bad decisions. Maybe uh, yeah, something happens and it, it just seems like things went wrong. Or at home, maybe an accident, a car accident, a work accident, something happens. Uh, things go differently than we planned. Do we recognize God's hand in that thing? Even though it seems like it just so happened. You know, it just so happened. And yet, God's hand is directing it. You know, I've heard of uh, many, many stories where people are uh, driving and uh, all of a sudden, for for whatever reason, uh, they make a wrong turn, and there, then they get lost, and oh no, I'm lost, and and now how do I get back to the road where I want to go? And and uh, finally, you know, after a long detour and maybe a delay of a half hour or an hour, finally I'm back on the road where I want to go. And they make their trip, and they come back, and and then they hear that there had been a terrible accident on that very road right around that very time that you would have driven there. And so now God's hand, maybe on your part, a foolish mistake that you took the wrong exit or you took the wrong turn or whatever, and yet God caused or used that adventure thing, that random thing that took place and guided you around that particular situation to protect you. And you never knew. You never knew. And God was there to help us. So do we recognize God's hands in these various different things of our lives that he brings our way? Do we recognize them? See, the brother this morning, he read, he turned to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I was thinking he was going to read further than he did. Uh, he only started in verse 12 and verse 13. I thought he was going to read further. But I was also going to turn there and um, read just basically one verse. Uh, consider it a little bit. I think we could probably consider more. Uh, 
but right along with what the brother shared on on uh, attitudes, you know. And verse 18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So then when we find ourselves in these different circumstances of of random things coming our way, is our response of, of worship and thanksgiving? Or is our response of grumbling and complaining? Oh, I lost a half hour here. I could have been much, much further. Um, <clears throat> various different things. I think this, uh, we could apply this to different parts of our, our, of our life, different aspects of our life where we feel that we've, we've lost time. We've lost uh, the opportunity. We've, we've made a mistake. Something has gone wrong. And yet God's hand is in that, directing it in a way that is fitting and appropriate for him. See, we are commanded here to give thanks. Thanks and praise and contentment all go hand in hand. Uh, What are... Some results, and I specifically have just one, or a result of not being uh, thankful. And this is where, I guess, and again, our attitude comes in. It works perfectly with what the brother shared this morning. But in, in Romans chapter 1, we have some very sobering words of those who uh, refuse to give thanks. We are commanded to give thanks. We are commanded to have an attitude of thanksgiving, an attitude of praise, an attitude of worship towards God. But then here, when we consider Romans chapter 1, we consider it as a chapter where, uh, well, it, it's, it's the sin chapter. I mean, uh, especially the last half of it. I mean, it's, it describes uh, the, the, the last days. It describes what the heathen do. And yet, when we, when we start this chapter, or kind of in the middle here, and where we start where Paul gets into the, the, uh, the results, or why do people get to that place, as, it's, as it describes at the end of chapter 1, we get some very, um, I guess some, some very good hints or, or thoughts on what brings a person to a place like that. And that is in verses... We'll start reading um, maybe in verse 19 and read a couple of verses, two, three verses there. It says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of, of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they were without excuse." And now here, verse 21. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, if we just pause and and, and consider this verse a little bit. Here, the, the men and women that Paul is describing here, it says that they knew God at one time. 
it says they when they knew God, what was their response? And now I'm not sure if if that would be like knew him in an intimate or personal way, or if it just more so means they were aware of him and they were they were um, aware that there is a God. Um, either way, they knew of a God. They knew God. They knew there was a God out there. But what was their response? And hence the warning, I believe, to us today. Their response was one of not glorifying God, as it says there. They glorified Him not as God. And then it says, it goes on, you have a comma there, and then it goes on and he says, neither were they thankful. So they didn't glorify God, they didn't thank Him, and then what was the results of that? The results of that was they became vain in their imaginations <clears throat> or basically empty. They, uh, they became futile. Their thoughts became vain or empty, uh, foolish along that line. Vain in their imaginations and their foolish hearts was darkened. And from there, it was a spiral effect where they started embracing more and more wickedness uh, more and more evil things. I mean, it describes uh, taking the things, the natural things that God has made, and and burning and lust with with other with the unnatural and and going on. And you have a spiral effect of them going down, 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 down. And it, it starts here when we don't praise God and we're not thankful. Very, very uh, powerful. And and then if we maintain that attitude of thanksgiving, that attitude of of uh, gratefulness, that uh, those worshipful moments where we are we recognize, as we read in First John three, that we are the sons of God, and a and a, 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 a appreciation rises up from within us towards God. For that, it causes us to avoid. This what he is describing here. And that's powerful. That's powerful. <clears throat> this attitude of, of thankfulness and praising and worshipping of God, of God also, I believe, causes or keeps us from discouragement. It keeps discouragement away. It keeps us from complaining. Because now we recognize that God's hand is in this. God is giving us this uh, to fulfill His purpose. And, and uh, it might be a, a hard lot. It might be an easy lot. Now, I found at times those who, shall I say, have it pretty good, it's amazing how quickly they complain. All of a sudden, they're, they're handed everything almost like on a silver platter and it's not good enough anymore. Uh, I don't like this. My pizza has has mushrooms on it or it has pineapple on it. I don't like like mushrooms. I don't like pineapple on my pizza. And then the complaining starts coming. And yet, what about an attitude of gratefulness that he has mushrooms to eat or he has pineapple? I mean, how many thousands of people are there in the world that don't even have uh, food, let, let alone a pizza? And so, this complaining attitude, uh, this unthankfulness is what hinders us. And if we switch that it, uh, to 
have a main, an attitude of thanksgiving and praise, it will keep us from that. Because we recognize God is providing these things for us. Uh, unforgiveness is the same thing. Contentment. Contentment. Um, in our day and age, uh, we always like bigger and better, right? Bigger, bigger and better. More cattle, more acres, more, uh, more employees, bigger business. And we don't always, we don't recognize that we should be content and thankful for what we do have already. Another thing, a, a thought on contentment is the idea of things always look greener on the other side. And that's, that's a dangerous attitude for us to cultivate. If always you're looking at the brother, that his, his, his corn is growing much better than mine. Um, his, uh, his job looks so much more appealing than mine. His business just seems to be prospering so much more than mine. And on and on. His, his wife can do such a so much better job homeschooling than than my wife can do and there's this comparing and this uh, this complaining this un discontentment and that type of attitude then festers ungratefulness it festers discouragement and then it also causes us it keeps us from obeying that command and fulfilling that 107 psalm 107 uh utterance that kept coming forth there. Oh, that men would praise the Lord. If we could recognize that what God has given me, what God has given you, be thankful for that. And I'm not saying that we can now do it all ourselves and we got it all figured out. We ask for help when we need help. But not have that attitude of, it's always greener on the other side. And oh, I wish I was, uh, it was more like that for me. I have found, I have found that everything turns out to be a job. Take the, 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 uh, the incident here, the, the um, example of the other person's job looks better than mine. Uh, it, eventually, it's always a job. It will be a job. Um, as a little boy, and I think a lot of little boys, they're me- they're, and maybe even some young men, some men even, they're, uh, they're, they're enamored by the operation of like these large construction machinery, you know, a huge excavator that by moving a few things, a few joysticks around, you can dig holes and move these big machines all the way around. Now, wouldn't it be fun and nice to have a job like that? Have so much power at your fingertips to drive. And that's sorry, ladies, I don't have such a good example for you, but for the men here, uh, <laughs> so so much power at your fingertips and yet I've found I've talked to men who uh, have who got that for a job they worked for a construction company and they had they looked at that and, and to drive a, an excavator wow that was always like something that they longed for and then they realized after they got good at it after a few months it was a job they went there they did their job they dug the hole they closed the hole I mean it was a job and that's where contentment comes in. Uh, in all of our, our life's affairs that we've, we find ourselves in, it might look new and exciting to start off with, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Just keep a proper perspective and recognize that even that starts to get old. Um, another example could be maybe a traveling salesman. 
He gets to travel all over the United States and see all these different places. And, and uh, you know, one time he's, he's in uh, California and the next time he's in, he's in New York and, and all these different places that he's going and he gets to see so many things. But yet imagine, kind of let's look at the negative side of that. He's not often not home with his family. Uh, he's often gone during maybe church or, or Wednesday evening church things or, or uh, opportunities at church because he's traveling. He, he has all these other uh, obligations and things that he has to commit to. And yet, he gets to see the country. So he has some perks, but there's also some downsides. And if, if we keep a proper perspective, that I think will help us to see the, the, uh, the good things that we have in our jobs, in our responsibilities, in the things that God has, pla- where God has placed us right now. And let us maintain that attitude of contentment, of thankfulness, and then may a, a heart swell up of praise and thanksgiving to our God. <clears throat> so in conclusion, let us See and recognize God's hand in our lives. Let us be thankful and praise Him. And let us maintain an attitude of worship. May God bless you.